0: Our way through, and I'm still not out of chapter 8, okay? Chapter 8 is so good, and I'm going to read you a story. Jesus, let me set up the story for you. Jesus had taken his disciples, a group of his friends and followers, on this weekend retreat, and it starts off with this awful boat ride on a dark and stormy night, and then things get really interesting after that. Let's read this story. It's a very famous story in the Bible, and I'll talk about it for a little while. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee, and I'll tell you more about that region later. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town, because that's the welcome wagon in this town, okay? For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. This appears to be the demon speaking through him. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, as though he was, um, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Legion was also a barb at the Roman Empire that was oppressing these people at the time, because a legion is a Roman army of 6,000 soldiers. So this was a kind of shot at Rome, too. And they begged Jesus reportedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission, which is kind of trippy. Jesus is so full of mercy, it appears he's even have mercy on demons, which freaks me out a little bit, okay? When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the, into the lake and was drowned, thus the title of my sermon today, Diving Pigs, or you can choose Bacon in a Lake, whichever works best for you, <laughs> depending on if you're vegan or not, Okay. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid, because this is a huge transformation. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them that's what happens a lot, right? A lot of the people you talk to about God, it's not that they don't believe in God. They just don't know what to do with him. He freaks them out, all right? And they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, saying this, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Wow, what a crazy story, Today, Happy Mother's Day, I want to talk about demons and darkness, okay? That's your Mother's Day message from Fifth Avenue Church. But notice something first before I get into this. Jesus had just performed this amazing miracle. He'd gone and he'd, with one simple sentence, peace be still, he'd calmed this raging storm, this this raging kind of gale-force storm. And this was a big deal. And now they were on the other side of the lake at their desired destination. And you'd think the disciples would be relieved because they just survived this chaotic time in a small boat. Plus, remember how they thought about water. To them, the deep was the abyss. It was this reservoir of evil where monsters like Behemoth and and Leviathan dwelt. So you'd think they'd be ecstatic to finally be on the other side of the lake. I remember a trip with our youth group. We called it the barf boat because we went on this ferry boat ride and it was like four hours long and we were just throwing up profusely. It was awful. And I remember when we got to land, I jumped off. Nobody told me to do this. I jumped off and kissed the dock because I was just so excited to be on something that wasn't going up and down and rolling side to side. You'd think the disciples would do this and yet they don't because only Jesus stepped ashore in this story which makes perfect sense when you know a little history because this region was called the Decapolis and it was a region most Jews at the time believed to be a pagan land filled with pagan people and the disciples were good little Jewish lads they they weren't sure they wanted to hang around in this region because these people ate pork which would have been offensive to Jews at the time and not only that they didn't just eat pork they used pigs in their religious pagan religious practices and ceremonies. These were pig people. And the disciples are going, we don't want to mingle with the pig people. And then to top it all off, the first person that greets them when their boat hits the shore is a raving madman full of demons, naked, running at and yelling at Jesus. So it's easy to see why they took one look at this and went, ah oh, no, Jesus, you're on your own, man. I ain't getting out of the boat. I'm staying here, okay? So that's just a little fun fact for you. It actually has Very little to do with my message today. I actually want to focus on three words: darkness, isolation, and stages. Let's start with darkness. If you're like me, you probably don't like the dark that much. I remember being so afraid of the dark when I was growing up. My bedroom was the last one on the down a hallway on the left, and I can remember going to bed and I would run in there, and I was fairly athletic, even as a small child, so I would run in there. Jump from the doorway to my little twin bed in one leap, never touching the ground, hitting the lights on my way. It was quite the athletic feat. It was very LeBron Jamesy of me at the time, okay? Because I knew as soon as it was dark, I couldn't touch the floor because that's where the, the monster underneath my bed lived and also the one in the closet. So I just jumped on the bed. Cover myself with my blankie, which all monsters know, we have an agreement with them, is an impenetrable force, okay? I hated the darkness. I'm an adult now, and I still am not a big fan of darkness. My wife, even less, she's more afraid of the dark. And which is okay, because in certain regions in the world, that's when, you know, nocturnal predators come out and make their kill. So it's people like me and my wife that have kept humanity alive for all these generations, all right? Well, the guy in this story, speaking of darkness, he is in a bad way. Darkness had actually defined his life, all right? He was trapped by darkness. He was in a cemetery, a dark place to live, and he was displaying dark behavior. He was very destructive to himself and dangerous to the people around him. And to top it all off, he was, it said he was filled with all these demons, these dark spiritual forces. Okay, I've got to talk about this for a little bit. Which is difficult, okay? Because the idea of demonic spirits that have names and can talk seems a little jacked up, doesn't it? Most of us would prefer that demons weren't a part of the Bible or a part of our world in general. I was reading recently, one guy said this, I love this. He said, you know, if I was God, the first thing I would do is I would kill the devil. And then I would invite all the demons to the funeral and I would kill all of them too. (laughs) And I thought, I feel exactly like that. Well, the first thing I want to say in regards to the demonic realm is this. I believe it's a mistake for us, living in modern day times, to err on either extreme. Some people on one extreme deny the reality of demons. They totally poo-poo the existence of demonic spirits. They just chalk it up to old wives' tales or, or ancient superstition. They claim that people in the Bible actually weren't demon-possessed, they were just displaying some of the symptoms of either physical or psychological manifestations and maladies, and there was no demons at all. And these displays, their, their symptoms were just labeled as the demonic. Other people are on the opposite extreme. They blame everything on the devil or demons. You get around certain Christians and you're a little sad, they'll come up to you and go, you're sad? You have a spirit of discouragement in you. Oh, thank you. Because it's good to know that, that the blues I'm feeling aren't due to low blood sugar or some difficult circumstances It's due to the fact that I'm possessed. That makes me feel oh so much more encouraged right now, right? And by the way, uh, okay, I just got to say this. By the way, sometimes blaming the devil or demons for everything, saying the devil made me do it, is such an easy out. Because when we say, oh, the devil made me do it, that means we don't have to own our own stuff and actually change, when the truth is, I made me do it most of the time, okay? Now, I realize that people all around us suffer from discouragement and depression, addictions and compulsion and fear and anxiety. Sometimes things get a hold of us and they drive us into doing things we don't want to do and being the kind of person we don't want to be. We venture too far away from our true selves. Sometimes those situations are caused by our own bad decisions and judgment. Sometimes they're caused by us giving in to wrongful impulses. I get all that. But at other times, we end up in those places because it feels like we're pushed. And then we're trapped in some sort of destructive cycle of behavior. It feels like we're the guy in this story and that we're living among the tombs. So if you asked me right now, Pastor, are demons real? I would have to say, yeah, I believe so not just because of scriptures like this in the Bible, but because whenever you try to do something good and worthwhile and godly, something that brings beauty into our world, you will always sense resistance. You will always get pushback, always, every single time. And you sense that that resistance is not from inside yourself. It's from an outside source. It's a spiritual resistance. I think that's why Ephesians 6 says this. I'll put this up on the screen for us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Wow, there's resistance out there. So what's our response to all of this? Well, first of all, our response is to chill out and relax. Darkness, whatever you believe causes it, whatever you believe is at the root of darkness, will try to encroach its way into all of our lives at times. The first thing we have to do is not freak out. Look at what the first chapter of the book of John says in verse 5. It says this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness won't overcome light. Look what Jesus did in this story. He sailed across a raging sea, entered into a pagan world, a foreign territory, just to get to this guy and set him free from the grip and the effects that darkness had in his life. And he'll do the same for us. Jesus has mad lock-picking skills, okay? He's not going to let the darkness overcome us. The second thing we get to do is we get to displace darkness with our lives. That's what we get to do. I get a great amount of pleasure, even at the age of 54, from breaking things. I know, I, seriously, I do. When you remember, you know, when you go to the store and you get those bags of ice that have kind of melted together, I get an unreasonable amount of pleasure from going, ooh, and dropping them onto the floor to break all the ice cubes apart. When we get bubble wrap, I love to pop bubble wrap. I have a jar of glass in my office upstairs. You might think, why do you have a jar of broken glass? Because when I was in college and was more athletic than I am now, I dunked a basketball and shattered the backboard. When I shattered the backboard, I didn't look at it and go, oh no, what have I done? I went, Yeah, I gotta get me some of this. And I scooped it into a container and kept it for a memorabilia. I get a pleasure out of breaking stuff. Oh, there's something so primal and satisfying about it. Look at this verse out of 1 John chapter 3. Look what this says. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, the reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The moment we start our relationship with Jesus, he invites us into this destruction, this heavenly destruction. We get to break the devil's stuff. We get to break the grip and the effects it's had on other people's lives and replace it with something better. We get to help walk people into the light and the freedom of God's presence. That's even better than popping bubble wrap. And you might ask, well, how how can I do this? How can I be a darkness displacer? The first thing we can do, there's a lot of ways, but the three basics are this. Pray. When we pray, what we're doing is we're connecting people in a spiritual realm to the very presence of God. It's like we're injecting light into their life, and that light brings freedom. There's a toy that was popular way back in the 60s. I want to put it up on the screen. Etch-a-Sketch. Can you see that? It's kind of a small thing. Sorry for that. It's an Etch-a-Sketch. I was terrible at these. What they are is there's two little knobs and it controls this cursor that draws these black lines. Some people do the most amazing art. I kept getting confused. My left hand didn't follow what my right hand wanted it to, and I just made a mess. But the beauty about an Etch-a-Sketch is when you didn't like your drawing, you just shook it and all the lines disappeared. I have to tell you something. Darkness loves to draw a line around people's lives. It draws a line and it says, I want you to stay right here. In your confusion, in your frustration, in your discouragement, stay right there. But what happens is when we pray, God does something. God gets a hold of the people we're praying for and shakes their lives, and the lines disappear, and they're free to follow Jesus. They're free to follow a better way of living. So that's the first thing we can do is pray. The second thing we can do is speak the truth. So many people get stuck in dark patterns of life, because of lies they believe. Lies they believe about themselves, about the people around them, about their future, or even about God. When we speak the truth to people, it displaces the darkness caused by these lies. There's a show that's making a comeback right now. It's called MacGyver. And it was about this guy. He's kind of part scientist, part action hero. And he always gets into trouble, and he always gets locked in cells or rooms or buildings, and you think he's going to die. And then he takes some ordinary item, like a piece of gum and a match, and he devises some tool to set himself free. It's amazing, okay? That's exactly what speaking the truth is like. God uses this ordinary thing, the truth, and he uses it to set people free. So when we speak truth to people, and when we speak truth to ourselves, These phrases we say like, God is so good, or you're such an amazing person. These aren't just phrases that make us feel warm and fuzzy. These are phrases that absolutely displace darkness and crush people's lives. Oh, it's so great. The last thing we can do is worship. When we sing out loud like we just did, our praise and adoration and affection and love for God, it is way more powerful than we think. There was a Jack Nicholson movie a few years ago, and it was called Mars Attacks. And I was actually looking at Pat earlier, because you're the one that told me about this movie originally. And in Mars Attacks, um, these angry little aliens come down from Mars, and they're just wreaking havoc, and we can't get rid of them. Earth can't destroy them with any of the weapons we use until we discover the power of country music. Oh yeah, you betcha. Somebody (laughs) sings some country music... And it makes the little green Martian, the mean little angry alien, explode into a pile of goo, which I kind of just ruined the whole plot of the movie for you, okay? That's a little spoiler alert for you. It's so great. So people go around playing and singing country music, and it wipes out these angry aliens. And the movie is totally bizarre and ridiculous. It's become kind of a cult classic. But they tap into some truth there, okay? Music and singing are way more powerful than we think. Second Samuel says this, I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised, and the result, I will be saved from my enemies. When you sense, I hope you can hear me because this is something I do all the time. When you sense darkness encroaching into your life or encroaching into someone else's life, please burst into song like you're the star in a Broadway musical. Sing songs of worship and praise, not only over your life, but sing it over other people's lives. Because when you do, the sound of your worship resonates into the heavenly realms and displaces darkness. It actually makes it explode like an angry little green alien. Okay? So, that's enough about darkness and demons. Let's move on to the second word, isolation. The loneliness this guy must was experiencing must have been thick. I mean... He was living in in the tombs, amongst the tombs. He was isolated from his family, his friends, his loved ones, and from the community. Isolation is never good, and it's never God. When you read through the Bible, the Bible is full of the language of inclusion. It says things like community, all people, Everyone, the whole world. When you read through the Bible, if you were just to underline any language that had to do with people being together, you'd be shocked at how much of it there is in the Bible and you just read past it, all right? Because Jesus is getting a point across to us that following him is not a solo effort. It's a group. It's a community venture. You know, people in the South have this wonderful word. I'll put it up on, this, on the screen for us. Y'all, I didn't like that word growing up because i grew up in pleasant hill and i I just thought i just don't want to talk like i'm a hick you know and then i grew up and i'm thinking you know i like this word y'all because the church should use it more y'all are loved y'all belong y'all are the children of god i think god loves the word y'all i think when you get to heaven or enter into heaven the first thing you hear is y'all are welcome here you know something like that because i think god thinks that we function much better when we're one great, big, giant y'all. Because dividing people up, thinking about it, dividing people up is always a bad idea. When we isolate different groups, that's what gives us things like white supremacy and sexism and homophobia and racism and, and religious fundamental extremism, all that kind of stuff. And yet it's so bad, and yet the church is still doing it at times. The church is still doing it. Entire people groups have been excluded by some churches, mostly because of that church's fear or their own narrow-mindedness, and it breaks my heart and makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit at the same time. I'm angry and sad all at the same time. It shouldn't be like that. I love what one guy wrote recently. He wrote about this, and he he wrote because his heart was broken because he knows when the church excludes people, what happens is it hardens those who are labeled on the inside, and it damages and hurts people who are labeled on the outside. So he wrote this specifically about the LGBT community, because talk about a community that's been excluded and isolated from the church. Look what he wrote, especially the last line I want to pay attention to. You can't read this, so I'm going to read it for us, okay? The church has driven out LGBTQ people for centuries with an especially intense malice over the last several decades. And in response to this, God says, Okay, fine. We're good out here. Where you chase my people, I will be with them. Where they gather, I will be there. In clubs, conversations, protests, in lament and anger and tears and laughter and way too many drinks. I will be with them and make this right for them. I will love them more fiercely for their wounds. Did you hear that? I will love them more fiercely for their wounds. I will draw them close. I will know them and they will know me. And they will tell you my name. That's why I put that up there. I love that last line. And they will tell you my name. Whenever we isolate ourselves from other people and say, ooh, I don't want anything to do with you, and you're not a part of our faith community, what we do is we rob ourselves of the experience of hearing things about God and from God through their unique, particular voice. Oh. It is a hard cycle to break, though, because people are always looking for a Jesus that will reject the same people they want to reject. They, they're looking for a Jesus that will draw a line in the sand and exclude the people they want to exclude. Don't we do that? The idea of some of, like, if your neighbor's really angry at you and is just really a difficult person, don't you secretly hope that when they die they won't make it? Okay, just me, all right? So, but most people look for a Jesus that they want to have the Jesus that rejects the same people they want to. And yet what we find in scripture is a Jesus that always approaches and incorporates the people who have been isolated, just like he did in this story. He traveled a great distance and he took this guy who had been isolated from community and drew him back in. Oh, it's amazing. I just hurt for the guy in this story. His isolation and loneliness loneliness must have been almost unbearable. But at the end of the story, look what Jesus does. He goes up to Jesus, this former madman, and says, hey, can I go with you and the disciples on your journeys? And Jesus says no. And the first time you read the story, you're thinking, well, that's kind of rude, Jesus. You set this guy free. You totally transformed his life. Now you don't want him around. That's not the point. This was actually an intense act of kindness. He said no because what he was doing is he wanted to give this man back to his community because our healing's never complete till community is restored. So while he's saying, no, you can't go with me, I want you to go home, what he was doing was saying, I'm going to reverse the curse that isolation has brought in this man's life, and that's the final act of my healing for him. Oh, it was so great. Now for the last word, stages. When we hear the word stages, we usually think of something like this, where maybe a musical performance takes place. A radio station in Eugene asked this week, they asked, if you could see any musical group or act in any stage, any venue in the world, who would you see and where would it be? And I turned the radio off because I go, I've got to think about that. That is a good question for me. And my top two, I I know this is shocking to you, but my top two is, first of all, I'd want to see Mumford & Son but I wouldn't want to see him in America. I'd want to see him in an Irish pub while I was eating bangers and mash with about 25 other people. Oh, that would just be amazing. And then second of all, I'd want to see Queen when Freddie Mercury was alive. Oh, and I wouldn't want to see him in America either. I'd want to see him in Wembley Stadium. I don't know why. I've never been to London, okay? But it just seems cool to see Queen in Wembley Stadium for some reason, all right? The man in this story became this amazing venue, this amazing stage that God's glory and goodness was displayed on. Check out what it, the last line in the story it says. I'll put it back up on the screen. So the man went away, and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Wow! This guy went through this amazing transformation. He went from madman to minister, and evidently he was quite an effective minister because he told everybody about it. And the next time Jesus visits this region, where there are no reported believers at the time, thousands of people thronged to hear him speak, and Jesus ends up feeding four thousands of them. The world heard about Jesus. The word got out about Jesus. And this former madman is the one that ignited the message, which is so interesting. Can you imagine a church trying to hire him in modern day times and how the interview would go. So, tell me a little bit about your past. Did you go to Bible college? Did you go to seminary? Have you spoken in public very often? What are some of your gifts? Can you imagine this guy answering like a head pastor like me, interviewing him for a youth pastor job, and the guy saying, well, I didn't go to Bible college. Um, I don't have any formal training, I didn't really speak in public because I really didn't hang out in public. Spent most of my time alone, unless you count the demons. There are quite a few of those, okay, thousands of those. My only talent is I can break chains. I'm really strong, all right? He wouldn't get the job. Here's the good news. Jesus' idea of a, an absolute ministry dream team is a little different from ours. It's a little different. Jesus' ministry dream team included a couple of prostitutes, some white-collar criminals, some rank-smelling Germans, some ex-lepers, and then this guy. And he doesn't stop there. Jesus fully intends on making us all a part of that ministry dream team. He's going to use the stage that is our lives to display his goodness and glory. And probably some of you are thinking, no, 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 I don't have the t- credentials. Anne Lamott writes about a dog she knew as a child, and I love the name of this dog. It stuck out to me in her latest book, She says the dog's name was Mostly. That's what they called the dog because it was Mostly Beagle and it was Mostly Nice. It only bit a few people. (laughs) So they just called the dog Mostly. And isn't that what we feel about our lives? That like describes our life. I think I'm a Mostly. I'm Mostly Patient. I'm Mostly Nice. I'm Mostly Loving. I mostly make right decisions for my life. That's how we think. And then we think, Oh, but mostly people like me probably can't be on any ministry teams that Jesus is putting together. And that's so not true. God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for willing people. And it's not about our credentials. It's about His. And trust me, your life's already a stage. People are watching God on display in your life. And He's going to use the changes that people see Him making in your life to change them. You're already a stage. Stop trying to disqualify yourself. God loves to use mostly people. Let me pray for us.